I'm Edith Chakraborty, and on this week's business podcast, the sweetest takeover in history, or will Kraft's £10 billion attempt to capture Cadbury's leave a bitter aftertaste? Plus, six months on from the start of quantitative easing, we ask, has the policy actually worked? And, as the Beatles' back catalogue is sold to the digital generation, we discuss rockonomics and the business of music. I'm the Eggman, I'm the Walrus, and this is The Business from The Guardian. Who says business is dominated by men? This week, I'm joined in the pod by three of the most dominant and prominent members of The Guardian's financial team. Deborah Hargreaves, our business editor, and since chocolate's the theme of today's programme, Deborah, what's your favourite chocolate? Oh, well, that's um, easy to answer, actually. It has to be very dark, has to be very intense. Um, and um, I'm Makes thinking sound like an Italian boyfriend. Green and blacks here, yes. Well, but a good substitute, I would say. Uh, green and blacks, Mayer Gold is um, also the one with ginger in it. And I also like the one with cherry in it. We eat a lot of chocolate in my house. Also here is Heather Stewart, Observer's Economics Editor. Is Hello. it true, Heather, that the lady always loves milk tray? <laughs> Certainly not. I'm a dark chocolate woman, I'm afraid. I'm with, I'm with Deborah. <laughs> and finally, Katie Allen's The Guardian's Media Business Correspondent. Since this is your first time in the pod, Katie, I'll give you the easy question. What's your favourite chocolate? Cadbury's Cream Egg. Easily. Not dark oh, chocolate at no. all. Oh, Katie, very Cheap, infantile taste. milky chocolate. <laughs> I'm lactose intolerant, but I have a... <laughs> forbidden love of um, cabbage cream eggs. And on that lip-smacking note, let's get going. Everyone's a fruit and nutcase. Maybe it's a tasty cabbage chocolate. Give it an ovation. Quite a combination. Cabbage fruit and nut. A finger of fudge is just enough to give your kids a treat. A finger of fudge Take it easy enough. with Cadbury's caramel. Inside a feeling where the crunchy comes your way. It makes you feel like Friday, no, no matter, matter what the, the day. day. And crunchy, it's Friday. Cadbury's flake, the crumbliest, flakiest milk chocolate in the world. Yes, a delicious selection there of Cadbury's finest ads from the last 40 years. The venerable British chocolate maker, which was founded by Quakers in 1825, found itself all over the news this week after the American food giant Kraft launched a £10.2 billion takeover bid. Cadbury's rejected the offer, but that's unlikely to be the end of the story, as Megabucks Crafts, unhappy with their current stable of processed cheese, crackers and cookies, are determined to establish themselves as the world's leading confectionery brand. Deborah, there's no doubt about it, it's an extremely tasty business story with both commercial and cultural angles. First takes through numbers, are they enough? Probably not, no. And um, you saw that on the first day when the stock market went up 40%, Cadbury shares went up 40%, which is the market telling you it's looking for a higher bid. The, um, the, the analysts are suggesting that Kraft may have to pay as much as £10 a share, which would, be, which would value Cadbury more in line with recent food deals. Although Kraft has said the market's down, the recession is hitting and um, those food deals shouldn't be used as comparisons. But the market's definitely looking for a higher price. And do you see this turning into a hostile takeover? Yes. Well, it's almost a hostile takeover already. Um, Irene Rosenfeld, the Kraft chief executive, was over talking to Cabri over the um, bank holiday August weekend. Um, 
obviously was rebuffed and so decided to go public with the deal. Kraft has hired three teams of banking advisors. They're not going to be put off lightly. They're in for the long haul. And of course, we could see rival bids come in from Hershey, another American um, brand, um, or Mars even. Um, So it could run for a few weeks this one. Heather let's bring you in we always talk about Cadbury's as kind of a almost part of our social heritage Quaker company been around for years we all we've all had a Cadbury's product at some point in our lives but do you think we actually overstate that that we're actually that the people in the media tend to overstate how romantic people ordinary consumers are about their chocolate? Um, I think it's still uh, it's still there's still huge brand loyalty to it in the UK, and you know they have green and blacks now, don't they? So so they've they've broadened their stable out considerably, and and you know I think we do all associate it with our childhood and whatever. And there are very few sort of British companies, British success stories that we could still all point to. And it, it, you know if it did fall to to a US company, it would be it would be another sort of example of Wimbledonisation. This this process that we've seen for many years of of you well, know we don't own anything. Yeah, we don't we own anything. It. We just yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think, think it would be a great shame. Great British institution taken over by nasty US foreign raider. We don't want them to buy well, it, Katie, do we? let me bring you here because actually Cadbury's, Bourneville, all the rest of it, fine. But Cadbury's been run by an American, Todd Stitzer, for years now. And the company's changed out of all recognition, hasn't it? I don't think that's the way people on the street would see it. People, you know, going around a supermarket right now, going to their corner shop. I don't think most right, of them would know that Todd Stitzer, who Todd Stitzer is, not even that he's American. But as a, as, someone, as a business correspondent, it has changed, hasn't it? I think it's, as a consumer-facing business, I don't think it has really changed. I mean, you, you played some of its advertising clips there. It's been mm. very well known over the years for fairly, hate to use the word, iconic advertising campaigns for high-profile um big concentration on the music they use and the products have barely changed i mean they got rid of the whisper and there was public outcry and they had to bring it back so in that sense it, it it's outward facing okay well, well it's, it's become a much more hard-nosed business i mean with its quaker origins its very paternalistic attitude it has become hard-nosed it plays with the big league it plays with big players but it still has this very um, strong roots in paternalism and it still contributes to the charity that runs the Quaker, um, the Bourneville Village, which was obviously um, built for the workers back in 1898, I think. And um, it's one of only four companies in the FTSE 100 with a final salary pension scheme still open to all um, employees. So that must be a good thing. How long that would last under a US buyer, I don't know. All right, Heather, Deborah seems to be determined to play Ms Jingo in this contest. Um, <laughs> is there time for all that nicety? Is there time for socially conscious derivation of products, for having workers' paternalism, all the rest of it? Is there a time for those nice bits of capitalism? Well, you know, I used to be quite relaxed about these things. and, and, and Yeah, I you know, did too, actually. Yeah, I'm not anymore, though. Do you think the credit crunch has... Yes. I, I think the credit crunch has kind of changed a lot of people's views yeah. about this because we all felt that the kind of, you know, rapacious red in tooth and claw capitalism was sort of justified by the fact that it delivered results. And actually, what we've seen over the past, you know, couple of years is that... Is that you know, neglecting some of those things and tossing them aside doesn't necessarily make you a stronger, better business. In fact, sometimes it makes you more vulnerable and more short-termist. And and actually, you know, I think we should probably cherish some of these things. I think they're quite important. Katie, let's broaden this out a bit to mergers mainly in general. We we read today that T-Mobile and Orange are going to get together and there's been a lot of stuff about who T-Mobile might sell, might be sold to in the UK. I mean, is this a sign of the city to come that actually we're back to business as usual? 
That's been the subject of morning meetings uh, among us in the in the business pod for a while now. Um, yeah, I and mean, we've got bigger deals outside the UK. We've got um, Disney and Marvel and eBay and Skype as well. And there does seem to be a feeling, if you look at the stock market as well, the FTSE sort of momentum over the last couple of days, that maybe the big deals are back, that um, we might even see some of them going through. Don't forget, though, that this can be a sign of desperation. Some of these businesses are looking to take on deals you have to look at the motivation for the deals some of the business like craft is floundering a bit it's looking for growth it can't really see any growth coming from its internal business so the easy answer is to take over another company so they may not be coming from a position of strength but more from a position of weakness defensive defensive yeah well if that's whetted your appetite you can keep up to speed on this story as it develops at guardian.co.uk slash business this is the business with Aditya Chakraborty. The fiscal position in the UK is not one that would say, well, why don't we just engage in another significant round of fiscal expansion? We can do more monetary easing if necessary. Monetary policy should bear the brunt of dealing with the ups and downs of the economy. And we have put in an enormous amount of stimulus. We've cut interest rates you know, in a few months by four and a half percentage points. Uh, we've now moved to unconventional operations in order to try to expand the money supply. These are quite dramatic policies and the fact that we still see a rapid downturn should not lead people to forget that there are inevitably lags between these, when these policies are implemented and when they will start to have an effect. That's Mervyn King speaking to MPs back in March. The Government Bank of England was speaking shortly after starting a £150 billion programme of quantitative easing to kickstart Britain's flatlining economy. Well, six months on, interest rates are still near to zero, unemployment's on the rise, and the country remains mired in recession. So has QE worked at all in the half year since it was began? Here's Graham Turner from GFC Economics. It's had some success in the UK. You can clearly see the economy has stabilised, particularly house prices have levelled out after a very severe decline in 2008. The rate of decline in lending is a little mixed here. Prior to quantitative easing, we were in the midst of a severe credit contraction. Um, In terms of household lending, there's been some stabilisation on the um, government, sorry, the Bank of England preferred measure of M4 lending. But really, when you look at mortgage lending, we're still seeing contraction there. We're still also seeing contraction in consumer credit lending. The the record is mixed. In terms of uh, lending to companies, The evidence is very clear that uh, we've got some way to go before quantitative easing has succeeded. Before we began the sort of the big experiment six months ago, the papers were full of two images when it came to quantitative easing. One was Zimbabwe and the other was Japan. And if you were to choose where Britain is between those two, which would you go for? We're more likely to end up like Japan. That is, that we will have persistently low inflation, but very big public sector deficits, general economic stagnation. The comparisons with Zimbabwe were just hysterical. But Japan is a good template. Okay, and if quantitative easing's not worked that brilliantly so far, why not? Well, I mean you have to say the economy has performed better than many people had hoped back in March. Um, I mean we were in the midst of a severe decline in the stock market and uh, we had yet to get the very awful GDP numbers for Q1. Um, So you know, I think the Bank of England will feel pretty pleased about where we are at the moment. Um, 
what they will probably feel is that uh, there is still the risk that uh, sluggish credit may derail the recovery. Now, that obviously goes back to the, you know, the, the, the basic problem, which is that banks are still retrenching. And, uh, you know, to some extent, no level of quantitative easing is necessarily going to offset that. In the short run, we have had a very big shock to our banking system. So I think, you know, they might well feel that given a bit more time, quantitative easing will continue to have some effect, a positive effect, healing the economy. I think my big concern will be, well, what happens to fiscal deficits? Because, you know, there's no doubt that uh, the fiscal deficit is going to overshoot the government's target this year. And some people will argue, critics will argue, that quantitative easing lets the government off the hook here because the Bank of England is funding the deficit effectively by buying all these gilts. You know, essentially, the government doesn't have to take hard choices. And I think that is a real concern here. And just put yourself in a position in Mervyn King. We know that the QE programme goes on until November. What do you think he should do after that? I think he needs to um, reflect on the political backdrop um, and how likely it is that we're going to get serious measures to bring down this deficit. You know, if that doesn't look imminent, then, you know, he does need to start saying, well, you know, can we carry on with quantitative easing with budget deficits going up towards maybe 13, 14% of GDP? You know, he's already made some comments to this effect when he's been um, testifying before Treasury Select Committee. I think he probably will start by having a quiet word in Gordon Brown's ear, but then he'll also be keeping an eye on the political situation because clearly Gordon Brown may not be in power come next May, so I'm sure we'll be in close contact with both the Conservatives and the Liberals as to see what they're going to be doing to bring the deficit down. Graeme Turner there. Back to you, panel. Heather, Mervyn King said we should judge QE six months after it began. What's, what's your verdict? Well, it's very hard to say because, you know, there are some green shoots out there. Um, manufacturing production has started to turn up. Um, uh, stock markets obviously have been racing away. And there's a general feel-good factor probably partly induced by the fact that, you know, it's been very clear that policymakers are ready to do everything they possibly can to try and help. But, you know, there's also a lot of evidence that we, we, we would have hoped that, that what banks would have done with this extra cash, that the, the, the bank, these huge amounts of extra cash that the, that the Bank of England has been creating and pouring into them, would be that they, they would lend it out and it would be finding its way into the pockets of ordinary um, consumers and ordinary businesses. And actually, when you look at the Bank of England's own figures on lending, it's still falling. And, that you know, that, that creates a real concern about you know how you build a sustainable recovery if there's very little business investment going on and nobody can borrow so you know the problem with judging how how successful QE has been is is what obviously what would have happened otherwise what how what situation would we be in if if it hadn't happened but it's hard to say that there's clear evidence that it's it's been successful I think it's fair to say and the phrase at the moment that you hear from central bankers is exit strategies. Mm. European Central Bank says it's got one. Mm. The Fed talks about it. And Mervyn King, I'm sure, will be asked about his exit strategy. Mm. Do you think all of that's quite premature, given what you're saying about mm. you know QE not having worked properly yet? I do. I, th- I mean, I, apart from anything else, I, it's quite clear that the bank itself, the, the Monetary Policy Committee itself, is not ready to think about exit strategies. You know, Mervyn King was one of three members of, of the MPC who voted for an even larger extension of QE than, than was actually uh, done in August. So he clearly thinks that there's more to, more to do. And the, the view of the bank is that the exit strategy is... It, 
is not actually that difficult. What what you do is 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 you know you, you sell these bonds that you've bought, um, and you know that their view is that. And if if you think inflation's starting to run away, you, you tighten interest rates. They, their their view is they've got they've got a weapon for for dealing with inflation should it should it get underway. You know they should err on the side of caution and, and chuck as much money as this uh, at this as they think is needed. I mean, actually, what's harder is is the exit policy from exit strategy from fiscal policy, which you know as Alistair Darling's talking about that today. That, that really is hard work, get it, getting the public finances back in order. Football Weekly with James Richardson in association with SportingBet.com. What's that coming over the hill? It's Football Weekly Live, a special stream show beaming from near-Earth orbit into your computer at 6 o'clock on Sunday, the 20th of September. Ooh. That day, of course, is the Manchester derby and the Chelsea Spurs ding-dong affair. And as such, Football Weekly will be on hand to recycle other people's opinions as our own, even faster than usual, on all the day's big talking points. We'll have, as ever, a panel of top Guardian writers on hand. We'll have views from the grounds. And we'll have Sid Lowe phoning it in from Spain. You can chip in, too, using the message boards or various other methods of communication, email, Twitter, or that SMS messaging business. That's Football Weekly, Sunday the 20th of September at 6pm live. What could possibly go wrong? This week marks a worldwide release of the Beatles' rock band video game and the release of their digitally remastered back catalogue on CD. Meanwhile, here in the UK, HMV has signed a deal with Seven Digital to beef up its online music retail business. We'll talk about that in more detail in a moment. First, though, here's Casper Llewellyn-Smith, editor of the Observer Music Monthly. I asked him about rockonomics, the changing business models in the music industry. And first, how the Beatles are reaching a whole new audience. Well, some people think that the Beatles thing is, is quite niche and, you know, it's slightly hard to, to call that. But what's interesting about it from the music industry's point of view is and people they will tell you it's a new paradigm really they'll say we used to consume music in a very passive way through the radio um, or we go and buy records or we might go to a concert but you're still standing back and watching people and now you're experiencing it so someone like Giles Martin who um, is one of the creative people involved in the Beatles rock band and is the son of George Martin the Beatles producer I mean he was talking to me the other day about how we're so used to music being like wallpaper now and it's just so omnipresent and part of everyday life that it doesn't really mean anything much to us. And the advantage of things like Rock Band and what he found, having been quite suspicious about it, was that it is very immersive and it makes you concentrate on the music and it kind of makes music special again. So that's hugely attractive, the idea of making music special again after decades of music being treated by the record labels in a pretty shoddy way. I know that sounds odd, but... You know, they got into this whole era of discounting music, so, you know, it didn't cost anything to, you know, it was incredibly cheap to go and buy it, or they'd give it away with music magazines, or they'd give it away with newspapers, and it had no real sense of value to it. Whereas people, they suddenly realised, were prepared to pay money for things like video games. So they sell the music to a new generation of kids that way. You've got to buy a lot of the expensive kit and hardware to play things like Rock Band. And then once you're hooked into it, you're also going to start buying songs individually or, with the Beatles' case, not songs individually, but they're going to start making individual albums available for download in the coming months. So, you know, once you're into the game, they've got you on a hook and they're going to keep drawing you back in. Just do a bit of future casting for me. Look forward 20 years' time. What kind of music industry are we going to have? Is it going to be smaller? Where's it going to make its money? I don't think anyone knows the answer to that. I mean, there's, you know... Start your own consultancy work in it. Come on. Come you know, I mean, at the moment, how do people... If you're a band today, how do you make money? Mm. Um... Probably still about 60% of your income is going to come through the deal you made with the record company, which will be your advance. But obviously that's not profit you're making. It's not hard cash you're making there. That's money that you're then paying for your own recording costs. 
you know, a manager of two young and very successful acts told me, if you want to make money from recorded music, you've got to be selling over a million albums before you see anything back on that. Uh, so that other 40% is from live and it's from merchandise and it's from, you know, suddenly record companies are much better at hooking artists up with TV programs or hooking them up with things like rock band. This was a couple of years ago, but I was talking to a big American manager from a um, huge American agency who do people like Metallica and Shania Twain. And he was saying, I'll tell you how you make money from uh, the music industry these days. You want to be you want to be managing people who are successful before the Internet. You know, they have got lots of people on their books who they're still making huge amounts of money from because there was a whole generation of fans who grew up uh, and they would buy an album. And once you've invested that money, you're also investing emotionally in those acts. And you had a fan base that was much more loyal. It's really hard, I think, for bands to make that leap. You look at a group like Kings of Leon, who are sort of arguably the biggest group in the UK at the moment. Right, they're American, but the biggest band in the UK at the moment. But they haven't stopped working for the last four years. You know, they've released an album eight, every eighteen months. They're touring constantly. Uh, it's really hard work. Even you two have found it quite hard coming back this time. I think to make the sort of money they used to. The album's not done so well, and the tour dates aren't necessarily selling out. So I think it is. It's difficult. Yeah. Casper and Smith there. Katie, these really are dog days for the record industry. You've spent some time with Simon Fox, head of HMV. Tell us what they're up to. HMV as a business have been um, increasingly shifting their focus to the games market away from music because it's true that there is a lot of trouble um, in the vinyl and CD market. They've been looking a lot more at games, which have actually grown strongly, and games haven't moved so much to a, to a download culture yet. I mean, they probably will do. So there's still money to be made from selling those big games to go with your Nintendo Wii, to go with your Xbox. And um, last week, HMV put um, 7.7 million on the table to um, buy 50% of uh, seven, 7 Digital, which is a, a British company, Mainly not because of its catalogue. It's got about six million um, tunes on its on its catalogue. It's more about its technology. Um, it already helps websites like Last FM. So it's it's very big in in download and streaming technology. Um, for HMV, that means it can power its ebook sites. It can power its music download sites. A lot of that stuff that it was outsourcing, it can now bring almost in house. And we used to hear a few years ago about £50 man who'd spend Friday afternoons trawling around record shops, buy a few CDs, a couple of DVDs and spend the happy weekend. Where's he gone? Is he now 50p man? No, I'm married to him. (laughs) (laughs) He's the only one left. And he still goes. He's the only one left. Yeah, he can't do technology, so he still does it. I mean, some old geezers, you know, they can't do it. So they have still CDs in our house. I'm with you, Deborah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think 50pound man has actually gone anywhere. I think that age and that generation, they still like to own things. Um, It's more the younger generation that feel that they would either like to download for free or stream for free or, or download and pay. I'm not saying they're all... They're all getting their money, their music for free. But there are still people there who like to own things. I mean, I know CD sales have have, have plummeted, as we always say, but they're still selling. And I think the digital um, remastering of the Beatles this week isn't to be confused with digital music sales. It's all about selling um, box sets. It's about selling things for people who probably will never, ever take them out the cellophane in some cases. It's about sort of reinvigorating that collector's market. Deborah, do you think we'll ever persuade young consumers that music, newspapers, books, films, that none of them are free, that they can actually pay for sending this stuff? 
Well, I can tell you a very interesting anecdote from my own family. Now, I have three teenage children, the oldest one of whom is a boy at university. He was, like all teenage boys, an illegal downloader until he went on a tour of a record studio in Newcastle. And they gave them a good selling um, story about how much illegal downloading was destroying the industry and not really the acts, but the middlemen, the people who are doing the recording and they're all on minimum wage. And actually, he's now evangelical about it. And he argues with my youngest one, who's 14, who says, you know, of course, you download them illegally. Why would anyone ever pay? You know, it's far too much to pay. I'm never going to pay. And um, but he argues with her and he says, you know, you people like you are destroying the industry. You'll never get anything made. We try and explain to her the connection between um, paying and having proper music and proper films produced. But I don't think teenagers necessarily make that connection so I do think it's hard to get them to pay you might get them to pay small amounts um, but maybe the record studios and the film studios should do a better PR job you know maybe they need to take them round on these tours and show them what damage it can do. Heather Deborah's solution seems to be that we we need to bring around members of the Hargreaves clan to each and every bit where they've been ripping off bits of content just give us a kind of top-down view I mean once you've gone to free is there any way back? It's difficult um, because it's once people have got used to paying nothing for something, it's very and and when there are other people in the market offering it for free, it's it's extremely difficult. But with music, you don't have the thing, you know, with news, which is the example that we we always bore on about because it's our own industry. But you know, with news, you have the BBC, which which fund, uses the license fee to fund lots of online news, and so it's very hard to persuade people to pay for it when they can get it from the Beeb for free. But with music, you don't, you know, with music downloads, you don't quite have the same thing. And I think if once you get to the stage where there are enough models which charge little enough for it i think people will be persuaded to pay okay and to end with what was the last concert you went to and what was the last cd you bought god um last concert i went i went to the, the very big blur gig in oh, hyde park i went to that too which was, was fantastic fab. it was absolutely, absolutely fantastic um, very young and trendy, I'm pleased to announce. I saw Pixie Lot at Apple's um, store last week. Get you. <laughs> last, last CD? Last CD I bought. Now, the Hannah now, Montana soundtrack. Now you've got me, yeah, Hannah Montana soundtrack. Heather? Um, it was a Half Man, Half Biscuit CD. On, on that, that, on that really note. throwback on to the, I know, I am, I am a complete throwback. <laughs> Okay, well, if that's your sort of thing, you can hear it discussed by people who are actually far trendier than us on the Music Weekly podcast. It's out every Friday and you'll find it at guardian.co.uk slash musicweekly. Okay, that's it for now. You'll find links to all of our topics on the blog at guardian.co.uk slash the business. We're back next week for a special programme devoted to the one-year anniversary of the collapse of Lehman Brothers and the start of the banking crisis. My thanks to Deborah Hargreaves, Heather Stewart and Katie Allen, our producers Ben Green, I'm Edith Chakraborty, and that was The Business. <laughs>